I'm John Opperman, Executive Director of Earth Day Initiative and host of the Parts Per Million podcast. So I'm super happy to welcome Lisa Fernandez from the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication. Hi, Lisa. Um, do you want to introduce yourself quickly and sort of the work that you do around climate change communication? Sure, absolutely. I'm the Associate Director at the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication uh, here at Yale up in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, and we've been in existence for the past 13 years. And we've been conducting surveys, nationally representative surveys, on what Americans think, feel, and do around the issue of global warming for more than a decade. So we have hundreds of thousands of data points about American attitudes on climate change. And I guess I would say that in terms of, you know, what our main mission is here is a question, you know, what is the first rule of effective communication? Well, the answer, and I know it sounds like a cliche, but it's really true, is know your audience, right? And that's why we conduct these surveys. We really want to know what people's opinions are about this very urgent issue of our time. And so based on insights from these uh, twice annual surveys that we do, uh, we try to help organizations communicate more effectively about global warming, how to mitigate it, how to adapt to it, how to address it, both at the individual level, at the household level, and at the level of you know, policymaking and organizations. So that, in a nutshell, is what we do programmatically. In terms of my personal connection and history, there was never an option for me to have any other career than something that had to do with environmental conservation. I was actually born on April 22nd, nine years before the first Earth Day. So oh. Earth Day has been personally very important to me. I distinctly remember the day I turned nine. I was in my hometown at the time uh, in Hanover, New Hampshire, and my mom and I went to Main Street and we planted flowers around some freshly planted trees on the Main Street in Hanover. And I've just never forgotten that. And I really felt, you know, as a child would, very excited to be with my friends and my family and other townspeople, all engaged in something that hopefully was helping to heal the earth. And ever since then, it has just been my ambition, and it remains my ambition, to make a difference in regards to environmental conservation and helping to make our planet a better place, environmentally and in every other way. So that's why I'm, I'm where I am. I will also say that I grew up in a family of anthropologists. So I was sensitized also at a very early age to thinking about things from a social perspective and from, a, from the perspective of metaphor and social communication and social identity. And so it was natural for me to kind of frame the way I would think about these issues and try to make a difference from that perspective. And so this program makes a lot of sense, right? We consider the sort of hard science, the atmospherics of global warming to be completely settled and that the challenges in terms of solving 
this issue are really more in the domain of, you know, social relations, politics, and messaging. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, actually, before I dive into some of the stuff that you had mentioned there, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of how Earth Day got named, but it's apt that it's your birthday, uh, because it's actually (laughs) Julian Koenig, who was a sort of ad guy leading into the first Earth Day. And it's actually Sarah Koenig, the host of Serials, uh, the show podcast, her father, that named Earth Day because April 22nd was his birthday. And it was a sort of logical mental leap from birthday to Earth Day. So right. <laughs> it's actually very relevant if it's your birthday. Um, yeah. Where the name came sense. from. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you had mentioned about the work of the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication, I'm glad that you started that off talking about know your audience, um, because that's something that I wanted to dive into. It's one of the biggest things that if people have heard of the work that you guys do, I feel like they're probably familiar with the Six Americas concept. Could you explain Mm -hmm. a bit about the Six Americas and how those are broken down and why that is useful in terms of how we better communicate climate change? Right. So, you know, obviously not everybody thinks the same way about anything and particularly about climate change. And that's since that's what's of interest to us, we're just interested in finding out about the range of the way people think about uh, about this very important topic. Right. And so what we're able to do using kind of large data, you know, crunching tools um, that are borrowed initially from political science is to segment our survey responses that we've received over the years on this nationally representative survey, um, we've been able to segment the responses into six different groups based on their attitudes about climate change. So these range from um, people who are alarmed about the issue to those who are dismissive with four categories in between. And so there's the alarmed, And these are folks that are already very worried about climate change and they're already making big changes in their own lives and are probably active on the issue and they want to know how to do more. And they, right now, they hover at about 26% of Americans. Um, Then there are the concerned who are another large group, about 28% of Americans. They're also active on the issue, but a little a little removed from it in their own lives, not quite as um, engaged in it on a day-to-day basis, I would say, but very, very pro taking action on climate. They understand that it's happening and that it's human caused. And in the middle, we have two groups, the cautious, who are about 20% of Americans, and the disengaged, who are just about 7%. The cautious, we sometimes call them fence sitters. You know, they're they might think it's happening, they might not. They're definitely not sure it's human caused and they're far less likely to be talking about it or taking action on it. The disengaged, or a very small group, just 7%, um, are, are pretty you know, removed from it in their daily lives. They, have, they tend to have a lot of other things that concern them. Um, and so they're just not thinking too much about climate. They're not hearing about it. They're not talking about it. And it's just not, something that they think about. And once they're made aware of it, they become much more interested in it. But just as a percentage of Americans, they're about 7%. 
Then we have the two groups that are far more skeptical on the issue, and those are the doubtful. There are about 11% of Americans right now, and the dismissive, who are also a very small group, like the disengaged, hovering right now around 7% of Americans. And these are folks who um, are far less likely to accept that global warming is happening and are definitely um, very skeptical about the fact that it is human caused. And the dismissive especially are very motivated actually to take action in opposition to policies that are addressing global warming and attempting to help mitigate it and adapt to it. And so they're very active. In that sense, they're like the alarmed. They take action in their own lives and they might write to their Congress people, their other elected officials. Um, and they speak with a very loud voice, but it's important for people to understand that they are a very small group. And one thing to point out is that if you combine those who are alarmed about climate change and concerned about it, that is the majority of people in our country. That's 54% of the American public. That's 113 million people. And that's, you know, compared to only 18% combined doubtful and dismissive about global warming, which is only 38 million, right? So there's three times the number of Americans that are alarmed and concerned as there are doubtful and dismissive. Most people don't understand that. They don't understand that they are in the majority in terms of their worry and their concern about this issue. And what is the failure there in terms of those of us who are interested in this issue and communicating so that people would understand that there really is a majority of people that are supportive of some action around climate change. Um, you talk a lot about the spiral of silence, for one thing. Could you speak a bit to that? What is the spiral of silence around climate change? Right. So this is that is the failure that 60% of Americans right now rarely or ever discuss global warming with their family and friends. Um, so we generally break uh, the public into two groups, those who rarely or never discuss it and those who occasionally or often talk about it. So what's going on here is that, you know, it, it's called a spiral of silence because if you think that the majority of your peers don't agree with you, that if you're concerned or worried about climate change, but you think that most people don't, and that is the majority of Americans, they don't think that other people is, are as worried as a concerned, they're just not going to talk about it because they don't think it's something that they have in common with their peers. And if you're not talking about it, it's much harder to do anything about it or to feel like you're part of a larger group that is interested in getting mobilized around this issue, right? So it turns out that if you do talk about it, even occasionally, you're more likely to be worried about it, to perceive global warming as a risk, and to support policies to reduce it. And that's very important in terms of sort of the development of social norms, right? Though there's much, there's great opportunity to leverage social norms. People really want to do what their peers are doing. So if more people understood that those around them care about this issue, Right. I mean, we're now at 75 percent of Americans accepting that global warming is happening, you know, saying that it's happening. That's huge. But most people don't think that their peers think that. And that's kind of the bottom line. You know, it makes people 
unfortunately, not speak up about it. And speaking up about it has tremendous power, both in terms of political mobilization and just doing things in your, in, and being motivated to do stuff about it in your own life. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the different segments of the population that you were talking about, there's the alarmed and then the deniers. It seems like mm -hmm. those are really the most vocal populations at opposite ends of the spectrum. So mm -hmm. is it true then that you kind of just hear from the alarmed and you hear from the deniers, but then for instance, there's a large segment of concerned that maybe are not talking about it that often? Right, right. They're concerned, they're hearing about it in the media, but I will say that this is also a bit of a failure on the part of uh, the media, right? There isn't, you know, relative to other topics, you know, which makes sense, of course, to be to be definitely writing about and and communicating about healthcare, for example, the economy, you know, especially in the context of COVID, uh, you know, and justice issues. Certainly, that's uh, the topic of the moment. Um, these are huge issues, um, but climate tends to get short shrift, you know, in terms of uh, media attention. Um, so that is definitely part of the problem. Um, it used to be historically that journalists would try to, you know, find, you know, they'd make an argument about climate change, they'd talk about how it's happening, and then they would try to find somebody that would, that would provide a counter argument. And that created a sense of false balance in these narratives between, you know, the fact that global warming is happening, it is human caused, and the relative, the very small percentage of people who believe it's not happening and not human caused. So fortunately, much of that false balance has really gone by the wayside, but still um, it's not prominent in terms of media attention and therefore is not prominent as an issue in people's minds who are paying attention to the media. Right, and how do you view something like the sort of perfect storm of factors that seem to coalesce around a big, movement like the climate strikes or what we've seen recently with the Black Lives Matter movement where people are turning out in huge numbers to show support for a real positive change in these areas. Mm -hmm. Is it, uh, that the sort of the group of alarmed is growing by so much or is that sort of just a moment when then the concerned also speak up so that's why this amplified voice comes to it or i would guess that the answer is it's kind of a combination of both that the group of alarmed about that issue has increased but also the concerned chime in at that moment when they might be sort of on the sidelines for the most part and other times in their life well, sure. And again, this goes back to, you know, what are your peers doing? You know, what, what is the social norm around speaking up about this issue of climate, right? It's true that the alarmed are more, you know, they're going to be more willing and more active. They'll bring the concerned up with them if the concerned are suddenly seeing that more people are, you know, voicing their worry and fear and concern about, about global warming. One thing to note is that, um, the alarm segment has more than doubled in size in the last five years, you know? Um, and right, like I said, you know, we've now got a majority of Americans at 54% are alarmed and concerned. So that's huge. And that really pales in comparison to the size of the dismissive segment, which is just 7%. I mean, that, 
you know, I can't overemphasize that enough. People really misunderstand that because the dismissive historically and to this day have a very effective, you know, channel for communication. They've historically been funded by the fossil fuel industry to sow doubt. And they've been very effective at sowing doubt about uh, the credibility of the science, unfortunately. Um, but it does remain true that Americans in general find scientists to be very trusted messengers on this issue and will pay attention. The other part of this that is probably worth um, talking about is that Americans, in addition to not understanding that their peers, the majority of their peers, you know, accept that global warming is happening and care about it, um, don't understand the extent to which there is a scientific consensus on this on this issue. You know, overall, 97% of climate scientists will tell you that global warming is happening and that it's human caused, right? It turns out that that's a real gateway belief. If more Americans understood that and accepted you know, and, and saw and understood that scientists, you know, really, there's a very strong consensus on that issue. If they understood that in their own lives and, and saw that and were hearing that, that would be a gateway for them to take action. And so we've done uh, message experiments that show this to be true, that even, uh, you know, if you kind of look at the different types of respondents where, that you're kind of testing different messages with, it turns out that even conservative Republicans, you can move the needle in terms of their levels of understanding that global warming is real and human caused just by having, by exposing them to the message that there is this consensus scientifically on the issue. Yeah, that's so really, that's huge too. That is, yeah, that is really interesting. I like what you said about it being a sort of gateway belief that can break through to people. Um, mm -hmm. well, your point about just how small the percentage of climate deniers are, I do think that that is something that we can't emphasize enough that it's just been this outsized voice like what you were talking about where the media would create this sort of false equivalency where it's you present the person talking about the climate science and then someone that says that it's not true as if 97% of scientists didn't agree and it's actually a sort of 50-50 binary. Um, one thing that I think was interesting listening to how the Paris Climate Agreement and the sort of global climate negotiations went for years was that it does seem like there's a kind of consensus globally that maybe doesn't exist as much in the US, but when they were negotiating the climate agreement at the international level, even representatives from other countries, I, there was an anecdote that I'm thinking of about Spanish representatives of their own government that knew that the agreement had to be structured in a certain way so that it wasn't a new treaty, but it was a continuation of existing treaties because there are certain climate deniers that were in control of the U.S. Senate. So they had to work around deniers in the U.S. Senate, just about 51 mostly straight white men who had outsized control over what was happening globally. Even though there's this huge global consensus of all of these different countries around the world, they had to cater to getting around a very, very small number of about 
you know, 51, if you put a number on just the majority for the Senate, considering mm -hmm. the millions of people on the planet, that deniers have really had this outsized um, influence and voice over time. Right, right. And that's very unfortunate. And, you know, certainly it has a lot of uh, implications for political strategy globally in terms of, of course, as you mentioned, um, getting, getting the Paris Agreement successfully um, uh, signed and so forth. And then let's not even uh, talk about impl implementing it and operationalizing it and reaching the next phase of commitments, right? That's the whole, let's not get into that policy wonk territory right now. But yeah, it's very important and that it, they, they unfortunately have had an outside influence. But it's, it really, it, I cannot emphasize that enough, how critical it is for the public to really understand that the majority of the people around them care as much about climate change and addressing it as they do, right? And that scientists agree that it's happening and it's human caused. Those are two just basic, if, if we could uh, help more Americans understand those two things, uh, you know, that there's a strong social norm emerging uh, around climate change being something that we must, you know, address that's very critical, very urgent, and that there's scientific consensus around the reality of it and the anthropogenic nature of it. Those would really help a lot in terms of being able to mobilize groups to take action and really address this, you know, both from a policy perspective um, and also in their own lives. I mean, I will also say, and this just came out today, we always um, do a survey of registered voters when, I, when we do our twice yearly surveys. And so our politics report just came out today based on our spring survey, which we conducted in early April. Um, and it shows that, you know, one key takeaway is that basically a third of registered voters say they would join a campaign. This is really significant because it means that there are millions of people that want to be mobilized, right? Um, but what what they say about why they haven't taken action yet is that they haven't been asked. So this is a key message for those who are already active and the activist groups that are building uh, in, in America is please, you know, go ask these folks to write letters, you know, go ask them to volunteer. They want to volunteer. You know, we've got a third of them that, that are, say they're willing to join a campaign. That's really important. And I don't, that's part of this kind of not being aware, you know, that so many people care about climate. I think if more of the activist community understood that fully a third of the public is saying they're willing to volunteer, there'd be a lot more efforts to reach out and make these asks of them to, you know, to try to uh, communicate with their congressmen how they feel, right? That's just one example. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's a really interesting number. And that wraps up part one of our interview with Lisa Fernandez from the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. Tune in next week for part two. You can find out more about what you can do to make a positive impact at dojustonething.org. That's do just one thing with the number one. 
and follow us on Instagram at Earth Day Initiative.